Our sermon passage this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. I will begin reading uh, once again at verse 3, just to help establish uh, the context for our sermon passage. So again, Philippians 1, 7 to 8 is our sermon passage. I'll read first, however, from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. This is our scripture reading preceding our sermon passage. And brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. Give your full attention to it. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse, I'm sorry, chapter 9, beginning at verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now turning, if you will, to Philippians chapter 1. I'll begin reading at verse 3 and read through verse 11, but our focus is on verses 7 and 8. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for, all, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel." For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that, you, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word, for what we have just heard. We pray to your Lord that you would bless us now as your word is preached. Please be with the one who preaches and those who hear. Please guide us by your spirit, dear Lord. Protect us from error. Help us to understand. And Lord, we pray that by understanding, we might desire to glorify you, to worship you even more than we already do. May your name be glorified now as your word is preached. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've just read it. Uh, you remember that back in chapter 1, verse 5 of the book of Philippians, that Paul made reference to the fact that the saints at the church in Philippi are in partnership with him in the gospel. We talked about that at great length a few weeks ago. And, and now in verse 7, he tells them that they are all partakers of with him of grace. Now what might not be readily evident to you is that the word partnership and the word partakers, that those are both, both based upon a similar Greek word. We'll get to that in a few moments. So that was a few weeks ago when we considered verse 5 of chapter 1. Last week, when we considered verse 6 of chapter 1, we saw that Paul is confident of the fact that the work of, the, of, the, of partnering in the gospel that the Holy Spirit has begun in them 
he, that is the Spirit, would bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, so Paul's confidence in the work that was begun by the Holy Spirit is in the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who is superintending. He's the one who's going to bring it to completion on the last day when the Lord Jesus returns. In these verses, Paul is telling the Philippians that he is not carrying out his missionary calling alone. First of all, he understands, he acknowledges that the Holy Spirit is very much involved in the missionary work to which he has been called. He makes it clear that God is sovereignly in command, but he makes it equally clear that they, the Philippian church, participate in his ministry alongside of him. Now, we covered this a few weeks ago, so we won't replow the same ground here. But a serious problem in the church in our day is the incorrect thinking that the only way to be really serious about serving in the church is to be an ordained minister. And you remember I gave you that example of, of some of those things that I saw when I was in seminary. where People thought the only way they could really serve was to be a pastor, to be a minister. The role of regular believers who have day jobs and careers outside of the church is, is very often looked down upon as some kind of second-tier calling at best. This is, in many ways, a return to the situation that Martin Luther found himself in uh, right before the advent of the Reformation, where the clergy were looked at as supreme and the, and the laity were far down lower on the rungs. But by the language that Paul employs in the opening verses of this book, he is telling them that by virtue of their partnership with him in the gospel, he is telling them that they are co-laborers alongside him in the gospel ministry. He doesn't see his calling to be a missionary as, as my ministry. If anything, based on the way that he writes to the Philippians in this letter, he sees it as, as our ministry. He's not interested in build, building some sort of legacy which will live on after his death in order to show what a great man of God he was. He's not interested in building a dynasty to pass off to his son who shares the same name so that the Pauline name would continue to go on generation after generation. As one commentator put it, the apostle has in view not divine grace in general, but the Philippians' specific identification with and support of his gospel ministry. He understands that his ministry is not his ministry. It's their ministry. It's our ministry. And for this, understandably, the Apostle Paul has a great warmth, warmth of affection for them because they understand this. They're participating in the ministry to which God has called the Apostle Paul. And so this warmth of affection, it's, it's expressed in verse 7 where Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, at the beginning of verse 7, Paul is making reference to his feeling of thankfulness and joy at every remembrance of the Philippian church that he expressed back in verse 3. And now he's saying that it is right, it is proper, it is fitting for him to feel this way about them. This, this gratitude, this thankfulness that he has. Now, I'm not hip. You guys know that. But here's an attempt to communicate with our younger members in the church. Paul is saying that he has all the fields for the Philippian church. I see some of you putting your heads down. That's all right. That's appropriate. I'm, I'm not. I make no attempt to be. Why? 
Why does he have these feelings toward these brothers and sisters at Philippi? Because they have partnered with him in the gospel. That is, in his calling in the gospel ministry. They've participated with him. From the very first day that he encountered them up until the present day for Paul, a day in which he was imprisoned because of the gospel. Paul had seen hardship and sorrow of every kind in his service to the Lord as a missionary. Many of that hardship and sorrow took place between when Paul first met the Philippians in around A.D. 50 and when he's writing this letter sometime between A.D. 60 and 63. He had been beaten. He had been threatened. He was shipwrecked. He was abandoned by his friends. He had fallen outs with Barnabas and Peter. He wasn't exactly highly esteemed in the Corinthian church. But through it all, over the past decade and more, the Philippian saints had stuck with him. They had not abandoned him. They kept supporting him materially, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. They were so concerned about him being a prisoner, being stuck under house arrest, chained to a praetorian guard, that they sent Epaphroditus to be with him, to give him support, to keep him company during his house arrest in Rome. They are fully invested in what God has called Paul to do. And they see themselves as part of his calling. And for that, he is thankful. Now, when Paul says that it is right, the word translated right is in the same family of words that in the words of one commentator encompasses rightness, righteousness, justice, and justification. It's the same word, that, that, that word family. It thus potentially encompasses all things right and just with its ground and source being God. So Paul might have said, it could have been translated this way, I am justified in feeling this way about you. In other words, his feelings toward them are not in vain. They are not based on any falsehood on the part of the Philippian church. The Philippian church is the real deal. Their support of him has not been half-hearted or limited. They are with him in his ministry, committed to what he is doing. They don't see it as the ministry of Paul alone. They see it as their ministry. Now this word translated feel in verse 7, it's a word that, that has to do with the things of the mind, the things related to wisdom. I, I don't know if, if you feel this way, and, and, and if I step on your toes, I'm sorry, I'm not meaning to, but it's just one of these pet things. When someone says, well, well I feel that we should do this, this, this. And I want them to say, I think we should do this, this, and this. It's, but what Paul is saying, when the word is translated feel here, the word has to do with, with the things of the mind. And, and certainly the things of the mind have to do both with, with cognition, with, with thinking, but also with, with the affective side of things, with the way that we feel. Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 16.23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind, there's the word, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Well, this word can also be translated, think, as it, is, as it is in Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, the King James and the New King James versions of the Bible both translate the word in our passage, think. Where the NIV, the NAS, the ESV, they all have feel. And perhaps it's because Paul speaks in the same verse of holding them all in his heart. 
let the translators feel free to speak of feelings rather than of thoughts. But in the Jewish mind, which Paul most certainly had, the cognitive and the affective, the thinking and the feeling, the mind and the heart, they weren't disconnected in the same way that they were in Greek and Roman thinking. Heart, translated from the Greek word uh, that we get cardio from, is, according to the primary Greek-English dictionary of the New Testament, the seat of physical, spiritual, and mental life. The heart in Jewish thinking is... The core of the person, the physical core, center mass in military lingo, as well as the emotional, the, the mental, and the spiritual core. And so Paul feels this way for them because he holds them in his heart for, or perhaps, perhaps because, you are all partakers with me of grace. And so really, we don't take great issue with the way that the ESV or other translations translate the word. It could be, I think of you this way, I feel for you this way. But the fact of the matter is that Paul, with the whole of his person, he expresses these feelings and these thoughts for the Philippian church. Now, if you're reading from an English translation other than the ESV, you'll notice that the word order in verse 7 is a little different than what I read to you from the ESV. For instance, the New American Standard translates verse 7, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. Now, the New American Standard more closely follows the word order in the original Greek. The NIV, the King James, the New King James, they all do the same. They, they more closely follow the original word order in the Greek. Word order in Greek is not as important as it is in English. In English, you need the positioning of the word in the sentence to tell you if it's a direct object or an indirect object and those kinds of things. In Greek, it's less so because there are, there are endings to those words which can tell you how they function in a sentence. So it's not wrong to adjust the word order in an English translation of a Greek text as long as it's for a good reason. I can only guess as to why the ESV switched the word order, but it's most likely because they wanted to emphasize the relationship Paul is making between partaking in grace and partaking uh, in his imprisonment and his defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is saying that they're partaking in both. Grace but also imprisonment, his, and also the proclamation of the gospel. There's another way to translate this verse, having nothing to do with word order this time. And the King James provides the example. Instead Instead of saying, you are all partakers with me of grace, the King James version has, ye are all partakers of my grace. And again, that's difficult to understand. You are all partakers of, with me of grace is pretty self-explanatory. But what would it mean if Paul actually was saying, you are all partakers of my grace? Well, this is a legitimate way of translating the Greek. It does require more explanation than the other way of translating it. The commentaries on this are pretty evenly divided about which way it should be translated. Partakers of grace or partakers of my grace? If Paul means it the second way, partakers of my grace, then what he is saying is that the Philippians are sharing in the grace of Paul's apostolic commission. 
They're sharing in that grace that God poured out upon Paul to call him to his missionary endeavors, to be a missionary, to, to sail around the Mediterranean, to, to, to plant churches. Now, Paul speaks of the grace of his apostolic commission in various places, including most clearly in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And I'm going to read this to you because you'll, you'll see that Paul is thinking of his commission as an apostle as a grace, as something that God has given to him. Of the gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So it is very possible, it is very reasonable that Paul could be saying here that God has made them, the Philippian church, partakers of the grace that God gave to Paul when he called him to be a missionary. There's nothing wrong with that translation. There's nothing wrong so much with the other translation. We are partakers of grace. We're sharers in the grace of God. And certainly we share with Paul the same grace that, that was poured out upon Paul when, when God saved him. So, so, so Paul could be talking about salvation grace, saving grace here. But he also legitimately may be talking about the grace that was poured out upon him in God calling him to be a missionary. Now, if the verse should be translated, partakers of my grace, then similarly to last week, it does not then mean that Christians are not partakers of saving grace. Every person who truly believes in Jesus is a partaker in saving grace. If Paul is saying that the Philippians are partakers of the grace of his apostolic commission, then what he means is that they are unified with him in his calling as a missionary. They are joined with him. And if this is what Paul means, then he's, then he's emphasizing even more clearly what he said in verse 5, that they were partners with him in the gospel. And that means that they are partners with him in his suffering as well as in his proclamation of the good news. And here's possibly why the ESV changed the word order around a little bit. Because that's certainly what Paul is saying when he writes in verse 7, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So the ESV might have changed the word order from the original to emphasize the connection between being partakers of, of grace, possibly Paul's apostolic uh, commission grace and being partakers of his suffering and gospel ministry. For Paul, they all go together. His apostolic mission uh, means, his apostolic commission means that he is going to suffer. And what he's saying, if we take this second meaning to be the proper interpretation, is that the Philippians are suffering along with him. But they're also partnering with him in the proclamation of the gospel, in the defense of the gospel, as well as in uh, its, its proclamation. I think it's safe to say that the Philippians never saw themselves, even from the very beginning, as passive recipients of Paul's ministry. They partnered with him from the first day until now. That's what he says earlier. They didn't just sit back and, and soak in his preaching and teaching as an audience nowadays would soak in a movie. Right away, they immersed themselves in gospel ministry right alongside Paul. 
Their participation in his apostolic commission was different than his, of course. But it was still of vital importance to it. In other words, Paul couldn't have done it without them. He couldn't have done it with their help, their support, their prayers. They're sharing in his joys as well as his sorrows. They're they're letters of encouragement. There's a saying in the Marine Corps infantry. Maybe it's this way in the Army infantry as well. I'm assuming that Marines still say this, that everything in the Marine Corps is just that's not infantry exists to be in support of infantry. So if you're not in the infantry, you're just support. The way they put it. It's it's a way, a, a long way of saying we're better than you. If we're in the infantry. People in the infantry have to console themselves with something, right? (laughs) After all, artillerymen refer to them as cannon fodder. They're ground pounders. But the infantry is trying to put everyone else in their proper place as far as members of the infantry uh, are concerned. Now, I'm speaking as a former infantryman. But the problem with this way of thinking is that without the, the support troop, the infantry can't do a thing. There's also a saying that's an acronym in the Navy for, uh, for what the word Marine means. And I'm not going to say it here, but some of you who are in the Navy probably have, have heard it. Marines can't get anywhere. They can't get their guns. They can't get their ammo. They can't get their equipment. They can't get anything done. They can't get things worked on without the others. Paul may be at the tip of the spear, so to speak, but Paul realizes that he cannot carry out his mission alone because it isn't his mission alone. Though he may be at the vanguard, the forefront of what's going on. He can't do this by himself. And by the grace of God, the Philippians understood this seemingly intuitively, and they immediately partnered with Paul. They immediately joined with him. There's a saying that has been making the rounds among blogs and Facebook posts related to the ministry. This has been going on for several years. It's, a, it's supposedly a quote of Count Zinzendorf, who was a Moravian uh, a minister. And the saying goes like this, that the minister should preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. In other words, the minister should not be concerned with making a name for himself. His only concern is that Jesus Christ should be magnified. And all too often, that is not the case in American evangelicalism. And the minister uses his platform to make a brand of himself. What Paul is doing in this opening passage is bringing those who support him to the forefront so that they can all serve together in obscurity. That's what he's doing. Paul does not care about whether he will be known 2,000 years after his service to the Lord in the Mediterranean. He's not concerned with it. Paul is concerned about the mutual service that he enjoys with the Philippian church. And this mutual service means that they partake of Paul's imprisonment as well as his defense of and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is not ashamed or afraid to suffer for Jesus Christ, and neither are the Philippians, and he commends them for this. He knows that the Philippians are with him as he makes himself a servant of all, as he puts it in Ephesians chapter 3, 19. To the Jews he became a Jew. To those outside of the law he became as one outside the law. To the weak he became weak. And as he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share. There's that same word, partake with them in its blessings. 
Paul wants for all of these other churches, in particular in Ephesians as he writes this to them, but all of these other people, he wants them to share in the gospel in the same way that the Philippian church has shared in the gospel. Paul has thrown himself into the calling that God, by his grace, has given to Paul, as indicated from these verses in Ephesians 3. And as Paul indicates in the opening verses of Philippians, they, the saints at Philippi, have thrown themselves in with Paul. And so Paul knows with certain conviction that they fully support him. They are as much a part of his ministry as he is. And because of all of this, and here's how we get to understand what Paul is talking about in verse 8. Because of all of this, Paul tells them in verse 8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now verse 8 is an oath. God is my witness. This is an oath. Paul is saying, if I am lying, then I call down God's wrath and curse upon my head. And Paul is saying, under oath, that he loves them in the same way that Jesus Christ loves them. In his imprisonment, he yearns for them. He longs for them with all of the affection that Christ Jesus has for his church. Now, I don't know if any of you still use the King James Version. It's, it's a fine translation. Nothing against it. Don't prefer it. But some of you certainly grew up reading and memorizing the King James. And so you may remember this. The King James has an interesting phrase here in verse 8. How greatly I long after you in all the bowels of Jesus Christ. That's a, a strange way of putting it. I remember my dad. As a joke, he probably got it from some TV show. He would say something and say, how do you know that? This was when I was little. He'd say, kidneys. Because the, the word for kidneys and the word for brains is somewhat together. The people in the ancient world, they didn't know that, that the brain was the seat of all thought and cognition. They thought that it was somewhere down here in, in the bowels, in, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in the abdomen. Now, the New King James, for obvious reasons, has updated the language to the affection of Jesus Christ, which lines it up with the other main English translations. And one commentator writes, the noun translated affection literally refers to the entrails, the heart, liver, and lungs, or viscera, not the intestines and figuratively to the seat of emotions or the compassion generated in the inner being, the heart. So what is Paul saying here? When he says that this, this affection that he has for the Philippians, he's saying that it rises up from the center of who he is. It comes from, from the innermost part of who he is. This word, it's translated affection in the ESV and bowels in the King James it's used numerous times in the Gospels where Jesus sees human suffering and lostness and is moved with deep compassion. It's the same word used there. And so Paul is expressing his great love for the church at Philippi. And in so doing, he's demonstrating the great love that Jesus Christ has for his church, the bride. His bride. How much does Jesus Christ love you? certainly at least equal to, but certainly greater than with the affection that Paul shows for these people in Philippi. Jesus Christ loves his church. Blemishes and all. Failings and all. He loves his church. He loves her enough to die for her, to lay his life down for her. And Paul shares that kind of love for the church. 
And Paul also understands that, that his ministry is actually Christ's ministry. And the Philippians understand this too. They believe Paul's calling to the gospel ministry and they have thrown themselves in with him, participating in his joys, participating in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, participating in his sorrows. And as a result of this, he has great affection for them. He expresses his love for them clearly. The Philippian church understands what it means to be partakers of grace. And as a result, they have become partakers of God's grace to Paul. His apostolic commission. He does not hold it tightly gripped in his hand as something that belongs to him alone. He understands that his commission is a commission given to the whole church. And this, brothers and sisters, is the way that the church ideally operates. Now we know, if you, if you read Paul's letters, his various epistles to the various churches, many of those churches are ones that he helped to plant. They're not all of them. There are varying degrees, varying levels of affection. It seems as though the church at Philippi is the church that he holds the closest to his heart. The church where he first preached the gospel, the first church he helped to get established in Europe, the first people to whom he proclaimed the gospel. He loves them dearly. But the Lord has also called them to share in his ministry. And the Lord calls you to do the same. Gospel ministry is not the work of the pastor, the, the evangelist, the preacher alone. It's the work of the whole church. If we get this right, then we won't have people who, who aren't qualified. And I don't mean that in, in some sort of high and mighty way, but according to Scripture, we won't have people who are not qualified to hold the office trying to become officers, ministers, teaching elders. If we understand the proper place of each person in gospel ministry, then there's no need for, for women to become ministers because they don't, they're not able to participate in the gospel in any other way. If we devalue what the church the members of the church, if we devalue their role in gospel ministry, if we don't see that what you are doing here in showing up and supporting and praying and loving what goes on in this church, if we don't see that as participation in the gospel, as participation in grace, then sure, it makes sense that people would become dissatisfied with the role that God has given them in the church. Understand that you are partakers in the grace of apostolic commission. Not that you're called to be an apostle. It's that you're called to support the gospel ministry of Christ's church. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for the ways in which you have called us to partner with you so that the gospel may go forth. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to see that not all of us can be the eye, not all of us can be the foot, not all of us can be the hand, but help us to see that each and every one of us in this church and in Christ's church at large, each and every one of us has a place, we have a function, we have a role to play. 
as the gospel is being proclaimed. Lord, our desire is that through gospel proclamation, your holy name would be glorified and that you would add to your number those who gather in your church here and around the world for the purpose of glorifying your holy name. We pray that your glory would be magnified. And we pray, dear Lord, that the number of those who glorify your name would be multiplied. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.